Jonah chapter 4. If you get to Obadiah, turn right. If you get to Micah, turn left. Short book of 48 verses. We come to the final chapter today, and so I'd like to begin uh, reading. Just for context, I'll start in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, but all the way down to the end of chapter 4. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Jonah, beginning in chapter 3, verse, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see the things that Christ has done for us. Fill our hearts with gratitude for all that he has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Beloved Lord, it seems like it was just yesterday that we began uh, this uh, short but powerful book of Jonah, and now we come to the end. And I suppose one of the benefits of studying a short book is you uh, don't lose the forest for the trees. You get the point right away because it's only a short amount of time that you're in it. And so today, as we consider the final chapter of the book of Jonah, perhaps one that may not be familiar to you. We all know the story of the fish, and we know of the preaching in Nineveh, but What about the aftermath, the point that it drives home, both to Jonah, but especially to us, the readers and listeners of God's word? And so as we consider this today, of course, it's always helpful to establish the context. Having been called a second time to go to the city of Nineveh, the prophet Jonah finally obeyed. 
He delivered that message that the Lord told him to say to the citizens of Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet to the reader's surprise, these godless pagan Assyrians who were renowned for their violence and their ruthless, brutal war tactics believed God. They were cut to the heart and they turned from their wicked ways and cried out to God for mercy. And we saw last week that it was, that was true from the king all the way down to the lowly beast. They fasted, they sat in dust and ashes and cried out to God for mercy. Well, the final chapter of the book of Jonah picks up with Jonah's response to such an extraordinary event. Now, about you, but most preachers that I know would be thrilled uh, to find out that their message was taken to heart and that there was mass conversion, what we might call revival, or uh, at least an outward showing of, of repentance on the part of the listeners. But Jonah's response is pretty extraordinary. We see that in verse 1 when we read that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I've told you the book of Jonah uses uh, words over and over again, oftentimes with different shades of meaning. And that's true of the word that we find translated here, that it was displeasing to Jonah. This Hebrew word, more often uh, typically translated evil, can, can uh, have a, a broader meaning of bad stuff. It can mean evil in a moral sense, or it can mean bad stuff in the sense of tragedy or calamity. And we see this word actually being used three times in three different ways in two short verses. If you look there in verse, chapter 3, verse 10, when, when we find out, when we read that the Ninevites turn from their evil ways, that's the word, And then when we read that God relented of the disaster, it's the same Hebrew word. Then it's repeated yet again in chapter 4, verse 1, where we read that it was exceedingly displeasing to Jonah. It's the same word. And so if you're reading it in Hebrew, you see this play on words. You see, we find out that what is immensely pleasing in the sight of the Lord, that the Ninevites repent of their evil, Jonah found to be a great evil, and it makes him furious that the Ninevites would repent and that God would spare them of disaster. That's because the Assyrians were the the historic enemies and the ruthless oppressors of the people of God up until this point, and Jonah is beside himself in rage. And he prays a prayer. Now, in verse 2, we find that this is only the second recorded prayer we find from the prophet Jonah. The first, of course, was in chapter 2, where he prays a psalm of thanksgiving for being saved by the fish, being saved from drowning, and being uh, delivered to dry land. Well, here we see the second prayer that Jonah gives where he really shows the inner recesses of his heart. As we'll find out, it's not pretty. He confesses. The the real reason, his true motives for fleeing to Tarshish when he was originally called. You may recall back at the beginning of the book, the Lord goes to Jonah and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh and cry out against that city. And we read that Jonah arose and he fled in the opposite direction. And yet we weren't told why. Only now does the reader find out what was going on in Jonah's mind, what he was thinking when he fled to Tarshish. You see, he was afraid, not that his preaching would be rejected, not for his own life, 
but he was afraid that his preaching would be successful. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. He said, I knew, I knew this was going to happen. This is what I told you, God. And yet we see his fear is based upon the nature of God himself. He recounts the attributes of God as God made himself known to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it was, and it has been repeated time and time again throughout the scriptures that the Lord is a, is a God who's merciful and gracious. That he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is how God has revealed himself to his people, and Jonah knew that. He knew that, not only from reading his Bible, but he knew that through experience, both on a national level having been part of that northern tribe of Israel, the, tribe, the, the tribes that had rejected the Lord and gone after false gods, who had a wicked king named Jeroboam, and yet God in his grace preserved them, did not bring judgment upon them, and even granted the, to them military success during the days of Jonah. So he knew through, through experience, being part of the, those, uh, the northern tribes of Israel, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Well, he knew that and experienced that not only on a national level, but also on a personal level. As we saw back in chapter 2, he was so thankful for the Lord's grace in saving him from death at sea. He deserved that death, and he knew it. Yet he experienced God's grace and delighted in God's abundant mercies and forgiveness back in chapter 2. And yet what is so often words of praise and comfort that God is gracious and merciful, Jonah now finds deeply disturbing. You see, he has no problem with God being gracious to him and to his fellow Israelites. He just can't accept the fact that God is gracious to the Assyrians. He thinks that God is a little too consistent with his nature. He's taken this mercy and grace thing a little too far. And yet, this is the problem. This is the the key to understanding the book of Jonah. When we see Jonah in this state right now, where he thinks that he deserves God's grace, and yet somehow the Assyrians shouldn't get it. You see, people who think that they deserve grace more than others Forget the meaning of grace altogether. Grace is unmerited favor. It is favor that God bestows upon people who have done nothing to deserve it and actually have done everything within their powers to forfeit that favor. And yet as soon as we begin to think, well, I deserve grace, it is no longer grace. No one deserves grace. That's what makes it so gracious. It's a free gift bestowed upon those who do not deserve it. And so here we see Jonah resembling that older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the story, the son who goes away to a far land, uh, offends his father, spends all his money, and comes back in repentance, and the father receives him. And yet we often forget about the older brother in that parable, the one who was faithful, the one who stuck around the house, the one who was always the good son. 
He refuses, refuses to rejoice at his brother's return, and he complains that he deserves more favor than his brother. You see, that's the real point of that, the, the story that Jesus tells. He told that, that parable to the Pharisees who didn't like how Jesus was associating with sinners and granting to them grace. They felt like they deserved grace while others did not. And so here, Jonah, when he cries out uh, a, far, a, a far cry from his psalm of thanksgiving, delighting in the grace of God in chapter 2, here in chapter 4, he asks the Lord to take his life. He's so distraught and furious at the outcome that he sees no point in living. And you can imagine, you know, just picture Jonah thinking about what, you know, how on earth could he even go back home? To be known as the prophet who spared the Assyrians, who prolonged their, uh, their uh, reign in the city of Nineveh. He sees no other point, no other option, but just for the Lord to take his life. Well, in response, we see in verse 4 that the Lord doesn't even acknowledge Jonah's ridiculous and self-absorbed request. And yet he patiently and gently urges this wayward prophet, into some self-reflection by asking him a question. Do you do well to be angry? This question reminds us of the question he asked in the very beginning of the Bible when Adam had sinned against him, and he said, Adam, where are you? It's not as if the Lord didn't know where he was at. He knew exactly where Adam was. But that question, Adam, where are you, was really a question for Adam to ask himself. Where am I right now? On whose side am I on? I'm hiding from the God who created me. Likewise here, when he asks Jonah, do you do well? Is it right for you to be angry, to be upset at who I am? It's as if God is asking Jonah, are you for me or are you against me? Do you really appreciate the fact that I am a gracious and merciful and long-suffering God? Or do you think somehow that you deserve grace while others do not? Well, Jonah doesn't answer that question. Hopefully, he took it to heart. But in verse 5, we get perhaps what is best understood as a flashback. Uh, In verse 5, when we read that Jonah had gone out of the city of Nineveh, and set up this booth to see what would happen to the city. Presumably, this is before the time period of 40 days had expired. You see, Jonah needed to find out and make sure that destruction wouldn't happen. And here we see perhaps the ultimate reason why Jonah finally obeyed and went to Nineveh after God had given him a second chance. He held out a chance that perhaps the Ninevites wouldn't repent, or that perhaps God would destroy them anyways. And he was hoping, against odds, he was hoping that somehow God would destroy them and he would get a front row seat. And so verses 5 through the end should best be understood as a flashback taking place before Jonah finally realized that God ultimately was going to spare them as a result of their repentance. And knowing that conditions are harsh uh, in uh, the desert, uh, Nineveh being near the uh, northern Iraqi city of Mosul, uh, the conditions were similar then as they are today. Uh, Just picture, you know, going out into the desert uh, and, and, you know, being out there uh, in in the heat of the sun. 
Jonah makes himself a booth. He has a little bit of time. He's got 40 days to spend out there to make sure what happened to the city. And so he makes himself a temporary shelter, which must have been pretty meager given the scarcity of supplies. He probably had some rocks to put together, maybe uh, uh, one plant, but definitely no lumber, uh, definitely you know, no uh, palm trees that he could make a, a thatched roof out of. A pretty meager shelter is what he made for himself. And so we read in verse 6 that the Lord appointed a plant to grow, making provision for Jonah. He gives him a plant to provide shade. Now, we all know the story about the Lord appointing a great fish, but here also is another extraordinary miracle on the part of the Lord where he causes this plant to grow up in one night. And Jonah wakes up and he finds himself being shaded by this wonderfully lush plant to protect him from the heat of the sun. Now, as we saw with the great fish, so also here with this plant and the worm which comes to destroy the plant. Whenever the Lord appoints something for the prophet Jonah, makes a special extraordinary provision for him, he's hoping to teach him a lesson. That fish was a lesson, and this plant is going to be a lesson. And so this plant, we read, is, uh, uh, grows up and provides shade for, for Jonah from the intense heat of the desert sun to save him from his discomfort. This word here translated discomfort is that same Hebrew word translated evil uh, and, and calamity. Here Jonah has his own personal calamity, that is the heat of the sun. And we read that this plant made Jonah exceedingly glad. This is the same word that is tra- it's translated in verse 1, that he's exceedingly angry. And so here we see his, his emotional levels. On, he's on an emotional roller coaster. His delight, the, his delight in the plant matches his displeasure for God sparing the Ninevites. He's so thrilled to have some shade while he sits in hope that the city of Nineveh will be destroyed. And yet Jonah, Jonah's rejoicing in the shade, was short-lived. For the very next day, the Lord appointed a worm to, to attack, literally attack this plant, and it withers and dies overnight. And then to add insult to injury, the Lord sends a scorching east wind. Out in the, the desert in, in Palestine and in that area, there's these winds, the wind known as the Sirocco, which is very similar to what we experience here in Southern California with the Santa Anas. And those Santa Ana winds can howl, and it's very dry and hot. And just so picture yourself out in the desert with no shade, with 50-mile-per-hour Santa Ana winds, and the sun just beating down on your head. This is exactly what the Lord is doing for the prophet Jonah. And you can just picture him there, suffering with the sun beating down on his head. He's undoubtedly you know, on the brink of getting sunstroke. And we have to question at this point, Jonah, what are you doing? Who told him to go and sit and wait to find out what would happen to the city? No one. He is here on his own accord. He, once again, is in a situation that he created for himself, same way as he was out at sea on the boat in the storm. That was a self-created calamity. 
And so here, he's brought this upon himself, and he's in misery, and he's dehydrated, and he's about ready to pass out from the heat of the sun and the, and the scorching, uh, hot, dry wind. And the Lord asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry? Same question as before. And yet here he adds another element. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? It's an object lesson. And Jonah, who's blind in his rage, and out delirious from dehydration and sunstroke, insists on justifying himself before a holy God. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Literally angry unto death. This is the last word spoken by the prophet Jonah in the book. Death. Angry unto death. The very same thing that he was thankful to be spared from in the fish's belly. The very same thing that the Ninevites were, had adverted due to their repentance. Death itself is where Jonah is headed in his stubborn rebellion by being angry at the Lord for who he is, by thinking that he deserves better than his enemies, he ultimately finds himself on the way to death. And this is right where God wants him. He has him right where he wants him to drive the point home. He says, you pity the plant. It's awfully kind of God to think that Jonah was actually pitying the plant, when in reality, he's really just pitying himself. This is just self-pity on the part of Jonah that he's, you know, suffering out here in the desert, even though no one told him to be there in the first place. And yet, God says, you pity this plant for which you did not labor. See, the point being that Jonah didn't deserve the plant. He didn't plant it. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. It's very similar to the type of language that, that Moses used for the second generation of Israelites when he was describing the land flowing with milk and honey, which the Lord is going to just give them, filled with cities they didn't build or cisterns they didn't dig or vineyards that they didn't plant. All of this will be freely bestowed upon you, O Israel. So it is with this plant. He didn't deserve it. He didn't ask for it. God freely gave it to him. It was all a gift of God's grace. But now, in verse 11, the Lord applies his argument from the lesser to the greater. He says to Jonah, you pity the plant. Can I not pity people? What's more important to God? Plants or people whom he has made in his image? Image bearers of God. Well, of course, people are more important to pity than plants. Moreover, Jonah didn't create the plant or cause it to grow, but the Lord who created all things made that great city of Nineveh. He created it. He sustained it with all of its inhabitants. And so the Lord says, I have every right to have pity upon this city I have made and these people I have created in my image. And he, he describes the citizens of Nineveh as those who do not know 
uh, their right hand from their left. Now, some interpreters understand this literally and think that the Lord is describing children here, you know, very young children who don't know the difference between their right hand or their left hand. But perhaps it's better to understand this as a metaphor, a figure of speech, to describe those who lack moral judgment. It's often the case in the Old Testament to not know the difference between right and wrong is, is a way of saying you don't know the difference between your right hand or your left. He describes the citizens of, of the city of Nineveh, that great city, as those who were spiritually blind, who were morally bankrupt, who as a result of their years and years of worshiping false gods, those idols that they made with human hands, have become just like them. That's ultimately the consequence of idolatry, isn't it? That's what we sang in Psalm 135. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You make an idol, it has hands, but it can't feel. It has ears, but it can't hear. It has eyes, but it can't see. It has feet, but it can't walk. So it is with the Ninevites. They were spiritually blind. They lacked moral judgment. They had gotten off the rails. And the Lord pitied them. Rather than reflecting the image of God, in whose image they were made, they were reflecting the image of the, of the idols and false gods that they, he had created. And so the Lord spared them because of their repentance. And he had mercy upon them according to his abundant grace in his nature. And then tacked on the end, just to show that his mercy is even more justified, He even mentions the cattle. It's to show that even animals who, you may recall, took place in that public mourning. Remember, it wasn't just the people who fasted and wore sackcloth, but even the cattle and the other livestock. Even these animals are more important than this plant that Jonah is so upset over. And here we see a reflection of of the days of creation that God starts uh, he, 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 uh, he saves the best for last. He creates the plants first, and then the animals, and then mankind who is made in his image. There's this sort of order of being, with mankind being the most important, and plants being the least important of all the living things. And so God's just showing from the argument from the lesser to the greater, if you pity plants, I have every right to pity people as well as the animals. As I mentioned Verse 5 to the end of the book is a flashback. The chronology is, is, uh, is twisted, is reversed, in order to give the effect where God is getting the last word. God is getting the last word, and the last word is a question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? And we don't know what became of the prophet Jonah. Did he recognize the error of his ways? Did he come around to appreciate the fullness of God's grace, not only for others, but for him also? Did he ever make good on that vow to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice unto the Lord that he said he would do at the end of chapter 2? Perhaps. We'd like to think so. Maybe he just needed a little bit more water. He needed to be hydrated. He needed to just get out of that situation and realize the error of his ways. And perhaps that was the case. But you see, history is silent. We don't know what came of the prophet Jonah. And yet I think that's the point of the book, 
It's written in such a way, concluding with the question, without Jonah answering the question, so that we, the reader, would be forced to answer it. What about us? What about us? Do we really recognize the greatness of our sin and misery? When we compare ourselves, say, you know, to, the, to the, those who are in the so-called Islamic State, we think of the jihadi terrorists, and we think, what horrible people. They deserve to die. But I deserve grace. Do we really recognize the greatness of our sin and misery that apart from the grace of God, there go I? Do we recognize the true depths of the grace of God in our salvation? That he didn't owe us anything, that we don't deserve any of God's favor, but wrath. We deserve the very same thing that the Ninevites deserved. Do we really recognize the greatness of our sin and misery and how we are saved from our sin and misery? And then finally, do we allow that knowledge of God's grace in our life to motivate us to share that grace with others, even with our enemies? Well, may God grant to us grace to understand those things and come to an even greater realization of all that he has done for us and motivate us to live lives of gratitude as we love and serve him as well as our neighbor. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to offer up, a, uh, offer up your life as a ransom for many, And yet you did all of this, not for your friends, but for your enemies. We thank you, O Lord, for reconciling us to God and granting to us your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would protect us from spiritual pride. We pray that you would protect us from uh, what is so often creeps into our minds that somehow we deserve your grace and favor. Fill our hearts with your grace and gratitude. And help us to walk lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we ask all of this in your name. Amen.